And it's my privilege to serve here as one of the pastors at Redemption Hill Church. And, and I'm hoping that you feel like your decision to come here this morning was a, was a great decision. And part of that is because I want to share with us a biblical framework for how to make a great decision. And so before I do that, I want to take a quick poll and ask you, uh, just raise your hand if one of these statements resonates with you. Have you ever dis- uh, really struggled to make a difficult decision in the past? Anybody besides myself? Okay. Uh, how many of you wished that you had had some help while you were in the middle of making a difficult decision? I personally can use all the help I can get. Um, I- I'm curious, does anybody feel like, you don't have to tell us what, but maybe you're in the middle right now of having to make a difficult decision. And I've got a couple that are on my list as well. And so when, when I heard that we're going to have an opportunity to talk about some real-life issues during this series, I thought to myself, you know something? This would be a really helpful and useful topic to review. You know, the truth is, I spend a fair amount of time as a pastor uh, talking about making not just good decisions, but great decisions. And part of it is because I think there's a lot of confusion, even amongst followers of Christ. How do we make solid decisions? There's so many questions and variables that are associated with it. And then honestly, even in the last 12 months, here's some of the kinds of decisions that I've had an opportunity to meet and talk with people about and work our way through them. So for example, some simple ones like right here at RHC, uh, what community group should I connect with? Or is there a team that I should be serving with? And if I serve with a team, what kind of a role should I do? Um, Maybe should I become a member of Redemption Hill Church? Or maybe the opposite, uh, should I leave Redemption Hill Church? And what's that going to look like? Uh, There's a wide range. Uh, What school should I select? What course of study should I have? Uh, Should I get a job? If I have a job, should I look for another job? Should I marry this person? When should I marry this person? Should I live with them before I get married? Should I pursue in vitro fertilization? Should I take medication for my depression? Should I budget my money? And if I budget my money, should I pay down my debt or should I save for retirement? And if I'm going to retire... How should I organize those years in my life? Real life, real people, real decisions that I personally have sat with people and hear and tried to help them think them through. And then I've also had opportunity to think about the outcomes of decisions that have been made and maybe really didn't result in the best outcome. So for example, some of the outcomes uh, that we would be familiar with of decisions made in the past, some would be tragic. So April of 1912, 1,500 people were dead in the North Atlantic as the Titanic, the ship that was too big to sink, tried to set a speed record across the Atlantic and only had 16 lifeboats on board. And we know the outcome of that. Some outcomes I've I've looked at were short-sighted. And so Steven Spielberg, in his film E.T., knew he was going to have this incredible scene in his movie that involved candy. So he went to Hershey, and he asked them if they wanted to have M&Ms highlighted as part of that movie. And their decision was, no, we're going to pass on that. And Mars stepped up and said, sure. And as a result, Reese's Pieces ended up in the movie, and their sales went up 65%. And my guess is M&Ms probably thought, uh, gee, I wish I'd made a different decision. Some, in, some decisions are really weird that people make. Uh, here's a picture, I think, behind me of two men that are dressed as a zebra, 
And in their thinking, they were trying to get a closer look at lion cubs out in Africa. And I thought to myself, didn't they realize that lion cubs usually have lion cub mothers somewhere lurking around? So that's just a weird decision, I think. And then there's silly decisions. So here's a picture of me beginning my senior year of high school in 1978. And that's silly enough, right? I mean, you can see the wide lapels and so on. But how about even a sillier decision? Look at this one. I decided that year to get a perm, of all things. And I still can't, my father still can't believe I made that decision. And to this day, I think that's why I lost my hair by the age of 19. So there's a really silly decision. So all kidding aside, let me ask you, have you ever made a decision in the past that you regretted? Maybe it was tragic, maybe it was short-sighted, maybe it was weird, silly, maybe even sillier. And, and, and how long did the impact of that decision last? And how did it feel? And maybe even how does it feel today as you think about it? And I wonder, in my own mind, wouldn't we all like to avoid some of the traps that come along with poor decision-making? Maybe in a more positive way, I could say, wouldn't it be nice to be more sure, to be more certain about how to make a great decision for whatever choices that life places in front of us, beginning today for the balance of our life? I'm guessing that the answer is probably yes, and that's a good answer because Pastor Andy Stanley wrote this, while nobody plans to mess up his life, the problem is that few of us plan not to. You see, just rolling the dice and hoping that somehow or other chance can help us decide, or, or sometimes making no decision at all, which is really a decision to not act. Maybe we suffer the, what I call the paralysis of analysis. We just look at all of the options and it freezes us. Whatever process you use, for thinking about and making decisions in your life. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nice to have a way that's maybe just a little bit more successful? See, mark my words, we all have a process that we follow. For some of us, it may be poorly thought out and randomly applied. And so this morning, I'm going to ask you, if you came in, I, I think you probably grabbed a worship guide or some other piece of paper, and I'd like you to pull out your pens and a piece of paper, and I'd like you to think for a moment of a decision, a real one, that perhaps you're facing right now. And as we share a little bit more about a framework for biblical uh, decision-making, I just want you to have that thought in your mind. Now today, I actually chose to be a little bit more informal than perhaps normal. And you can see that I've actually chosen to bring my kitchen chair. This is actually from my house. And it's because in this kitchen chair, I've sat with my children, I've sat with colleagues, I've sat with congregants, neighbors, literally hundreds of hours listening to people and, and considering their choices and, and offering some guidance. In all those years, I never actually made the decision for any person that came to me for counsel. Rather, I, I, I tried to ask clarifying questions. And I would offer, I think, some good basic insight, and I'd encourage them in the process. And I'm hoping that that's what we do here 
this morning, and I pray that you find it helpful. So with that in mind, I'm going to share with you a framework for basic biblical principles. It's been adapted, and I've leaned heavily on a wonderful Christian writer named Gary Frazan, and I think we can focus, and I think we can navigate the wide range of choices that are represented here in this theater this morning. And I'm hoping that when we finish, you feel just a little bit more equipped to make better decisions, maybe a little bit more consistently, and certainly with greater confidence. Earlier in the worship service, Tanner read the full text of Proverbs 2, all 22 verses. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but as we get ready to pray, I'm going to ask that you'll open up your Bibles and you'll stick your finger. We're going to focus in on those first five verses. So go ahead and find those pages because we're going to refer to them several times. And while you're doing that, let's just bow our heads for a moment. And I'm going to pray and I'm just going to ask, would you just repeat after me the simple words that I say as a prayer? Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, speak to our hearts and change our lives. Amen. Now, I want you to imagine that the box that's hopefully up on the screen behind me represents every decision that ever needs to be made in your life. Where, in light of that, would we begin with decision-making? Because there's a lot of choices there in the decision-making universe. There's a lot of possibilities. And the good news that I could share with you is that we haven't been left to figure this out on our own. You see, throughout history, God has communicated to mankind in a number of ways. Through creation, he's given some general insight on his nature. And through his word, he's given specific revelation that was delivered by the prophets. And it was revealed in the life of Jesus Christ, what I would call the ultimate revelation. And it's recorded in the very word that you're looking at for us to read and to hear and to understand. And the simplest, the simplest understanding of that revealed word is this. God has a moral will, and he has revealed commands and principles to teach us how to believe and how to live. And this moral will, even for the youngest child that just went to Transformation Station, allows us to know right from wrong. God's moral will is fully revealed in the Bible. It's the expression of his very character and nature. It touches every aspect and moment of our life. And for the follower of Christ, it equips us for every good work that is to follow. Proverbs 2, if you have your finger in it, it points to that moral will when it says, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you. See, his words and his commands clearly communicate that there are choices that lay outside his moral will, and there's choices that lie inside his moral will. And it produces for us the first principle this morning in great decision-making that I want to share with you, and that's just the principle of obedience. And it's very simple. Where God commands, we must obey. If we're weighing a decision, and it's clearly prohibited by God, as revealed in his word, then we must say no to that decision because it lies outside his moral will. And on the other hand, if we're weighing a decision and it's clearly commanded by God, 
as revealed in his word, then we must say yes to that decision because it lies inside his moral will. Now, for our purposes today, I'm representing this reality or this perspective or this worldview by the separation of that big, large circle outline that you now see on the screen. Everyone see that? Now, we should understand that God's moral will is not just restricted to our actions or to our behaviors. See, God's moral will not only prescribes the goals of living life, such as doing good works to others or fulfilling your God-given responsibilities, but it also covers the attitudes of our hearts. And so things like gratitude and courage and joy are just as important while we pursue the actions of the goals of the decisions that are laid before us. It's entirely possible to act according to God's will in a manner that violates the attitude that God desires as we pursue his instructions. And so I want you to put your thinking caps on here for a second. And I want to ask you, what do you think might be the two greatest barriers to fulfilling this principle of obedience in making great decisions? I've got two. They're rather simple. One on its face is ignorance of God's word. I mean, in other words, if you don't know what to do or what is expected by God, then you may not do a very good job of choosing according to his heart's desires and intentions. The second thing is, sometimes it's a stubborn resistance to God's will. In other words, we may know, but we simply don't want to do what we know to be true. And it's so important. It's why we stress over and over again here at Redemption Hill Church the need for us to come together and to regularly study and not just study God's word so that we don't remain ignorant, but to apply God's word so that we become a people of action. And that study and that application should be taking place in in several different ways. One is in your personal life, in your alone time with God, some rhythm and regular um, application of reading uh, your Bible, perhaps a good study Bible that can offer some insights. Maybe you'll grab some resources from the resource table that's out in our lobby and use that as a source for enriching your understanding of God's word. Uh, there's just so many here in the American uh, culture, there's so many resources available to us. We're without excuse. Sometimes, though, we need to do that together where we can not only study, but we can actually receive support uh, so that we can overcome our confusion, perhaps, and our ignorance, but also the encouragement to overcome our very stubbornness. And there's several things, like today we're coming together as the body of Christ so that we can hear the word and, and rightly divide it and, and encourage each other. But we also, perhaps you're just exploring who Jesus is and what Christianity is about, and so we offer an explore group. And that explore group is an attempt to give you some beginning opportunities to study the word and begin to understand what it is that God expects and how you might be able to weave your way through a gospel of grace. And then we've heard already community groups will be starting up in about two weeks. And community groups generally take what we teach here on Sunday mornings and pull it into the middle of the week so that we can have an interactive opportunity to understand God's word, but not just understand it, but then apply it in an environment of support and grace. 
And so all of these are ways that we can take some meaningful steps towards a life of obedience. And my prayer for us this morning is that God would help us to know, but not just know, but then to act upon his specific and his revealed will. Well, clearly the Bible doesn't specifically address every decision that you could ever possibly make. Some decisions, if we're honest, are just trivial. Should I have vanilla ice cream or should I have chocolate ice cream? You're free to decide. Some happen every day and maybe how should I spend the evening hours that I have after work? Some decisions are life-altering, like should I or shouldn't I do chemotherapy when I get a diagnosis of cancer? There are so many options and choices that are available to us today that weren't even possible when the Bible was actually being written. And so this reality brings me to our second principle of this morning in great decision-making. It's what I call the principle of freedom. And I want you to hear me in this. Provided that any final decision that you make is not clearly contrary to God's moral will in either purpose or attitude or action, in other words, if your choice is not clearly forbidden in the Scripture or otherwise constrained by the Word, then you have a certain freedom to exercise choice. And given that some decisions have multiple different options, it's entirely possible that you could have many different decisions, all of which may be perfectly acceptable to God. Again, in this case, God does not dictate what you must do. You're free to make that decision, but I'm going to take that one step further. I'm going to argue that the weight of Scripture is that you not only have that privilege, but you have that responsibility. And that responsibility means the same responsibility that comes as a steward or as a manager of that opportunity that you've been given to decide. And keep in mind that some of the options that are available, some may be adequate, some may be good, some may be great, and there may even be one that's best. Still, where there is no command, God gives us freedom and responsibility to choose. Um, let me use an example that uh, happens most Sundays here. In fact, it's going to happen at the back end of this service. And that's sharing an offering, participating in the sharing of our wealth. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says this, and it's familiar to many of us. Let each one give just as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Giving that flows from a heart that is grudging or compelled by guilt is actually forbidden. It's outside of God's will. It's outside that circle that I've drawn in our illustration. On the same time, numerous places in the scripture teach that the choice to worship God through the regular giving of an offering through the local place of worship, that choice is correct. In fact, it's even commanded, and therefore it's inside the circle. It's inside God's moral will. Now, having said that, we still have a range of choices available to us as a giver. So, for example, how you give. While here at RHC, we usually don't receive 
sacrificed bulls and baskets of fresh vegetables as an offering like maybe they did in ancient Israel. Many of you share your wealth with checks and cash and push pay and AT, um, EFTs and just all kinds of ways that you share wealth. And many of those ways weren't even envisioned by the writers of the scriptures. When you give, some of you choose to align your giving with your paycheck. So in some instances, it's weekly or bi-weekly or monthly. Sometimes it's when windfalls occur and there's an extra offering that's offered. How much you give, uh, while there's a guideline that floats around of 10%, or what you'll hear sometimes as a tithe, is often cited. The fact is, God just expects us to give generously, and he allows us to establish something that's proportionate to what he has given to us. And you see, in all of these instances, in all of these choices, within God's moral will that we be givers, there is this freedom to choose, but also the freedom to be responsible in the choosing. God expects that within our delegated freedom, that we commit ourselves to his preferences as we responsibly apply his character, his purpose, and his mission to our choices. In this example of giving that I just gave you, God's character is generous with a capital G. One of his purposes is to see us grow in the management of what he's entrusted to us. And his mission is that other potential worshipers of God will be reached with the good news of Jesus as our resources are organized to see that mission accomplished. And so let me just reiterate here for us that this freedom that's granted by God, it's not a passive freedom. It's to be active as we engage decision-making with an attitude of stewardship. In other words, just as we receive wealth and we're commanded to manage wealth wisely, just as we receive children and we're commanded to raise children well, just as God gives us health and asks us to manage as a steward, we are to receive the freedom to choose and we are to manage it well. Look back at Proverbs 2. It says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you. So those are the things that we receive. We receive what? His word and his commands. That's the beginning point. But he goes on to say, making our ear attentive to wisdom, inclining our heart to understanding, calling out for insight, raising our voice for understanding, seeking it like silver, searching for it as for hidden treasures. Make, incline, call out, raise, seek, search. These are words of action. It's where we move from intention to decision to action in life. These are words of responsibility. And so my prayer for us this morning is that God would help us to recognize this tremendous gift of freedom that he's given, and can we also recognize this tremendous privilege of responsibility that he's attached to that freedom as the giver 
of that freedom. May it be so. If God gives us the responsibility to choose, and if he's not going to dictate every choice that we make, then on what basis is the Christian to make his decisions in freedom areas? And this brings us to our third principle this morning. It's what I call the principle of wisdom. It simply says, where there is no command, God gives us wisdom to choose. He just doesn't award us the freedom and the responsibility, but he comes behind and he equips us to do it well. Psalm 2 says that we are to make our ears attentive to what? To wisdom. And we're supposed to incline our hearts to what? Understanding. What are we supposed to call out for? Insight. And what are we to raise our voices for? Understanding. And see, this pathway of wisdom so that we can make wise decisions is oriented towards what I'll call spiritual advantage. Spiritual meaning that the end and the means are governed by God's moral will. And the advantage is there are some things that simply work better that are within God's moral will. Wisdom is the power to see. It's the inclination to choose the best and the highest together with what? The surest means of achieving it. In other words, we should be thinking in all circumstances what is spiritually profitable in this given situation. And to help us be spiritually uh, advantageous, God provides us with all that we need in, in a form of godly guidance. So I'm just going to share with you in a very, very rapid manner a few of those elements. Gifts. We can discover and we can use spiritual gifts and talents and abilities that God has given us to serve others. Each of us was designed by God to understand his unique shape and then release that shape into his service and into the service of others. Knowing that shape and following the clues of that shape can give us insight into the pathways that God actually has for us. Understanding. There are times that we need to slow down. We need to take the time to clearly discern what the decision is all about. Some decisions happen rapidly. I want vanilla, not chocolate ice cream, and you probably don't need to take a lot of time. But how many times do we fail to really understand what's at stake when we make a key decision? So many times we don't identify the central key issue. Sometimes we don't count the cost carefully of the decision that we're making. And so sometimes just, just measuring and weighing and thinking about the weight of that decision can be a great first step and allows us a measure of guidance. Impressions. The Spirit of God often brings conviction through strong impressions of his thoughts or his principles. And last week I told uh, Pastor Tanner when he's coming off the stage, it just struck me when we were praying, the Holy Spirit of God, it's not a force. It's not a technology. Sometimes as Christians we treat the Holy Spirit, like it's technology for us to manipulate. No, God's Spirit is personal. In the Old Testament, the image of God as our shepherd ran throughout the scriptures. And the Bible teaches that when we hear his call as his sheep, and we humble ourselves before him, and we become born again as his followers, 
the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And living in us, that Spirit begins to speak into our inner lives in a way that we can recognize the shepherd's voice as a source of direction. Desires. When you seek to please the Lord, His desires will become your desires. You see, as we commune regularly with God through those daily rhythms of word and prayer that I talked about earlier, there's a miraculous transformation that starts to happen in our hearts. It starts to take place, and we find that what He wants becomes more and more often what we want. And therefore, His desires increasingly become better at providing life guidance to us. Advice. God often speaks to us through the counsel of wise others. Thankfully, God doesn't leave us alone in our decision-making. In addition to the leading of His Spirit, He often provides other godly people in our lives that can offer life wisdom and practical advice. I don't know if you've ever suffered from this. I, I raised three children, and it used to make me crazy when they would come and announce decisions made instead of discussing decisions as they were being made. Oh, the heartache, I think, as a father, I could have helped them to avoid had they sought the counsel of godly others, whether it was me or someone else in the life of the church. Necessity. We are to evaluate our God-given responsibilities and we're to choose our actions appropriately. And so if God has placed you in a certain situation or in a certain role, oftentimes the choices that you need to make are guided by that role. So for example, if you're a husband, it implies that maybe loving your wife will involve sitting on the couch and rubbing her feet. Teresa would give me an amen for that. Or being a student, it might imply that you say no to Monday night football and yes to a little bit more study. If you're an RHC member, it might involve skipping an extra hour's worth of sleep on a Sunday morning so you can show up early and actually greet those that are new as they come here to worship with us. We also have circumstances that, that God allows to guide us. Not all doors are opened by God, but many times closed doors can determine your way, at least for the present moment. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more uh, later, but keep in mind that sometimes ruling something out can be as powerful as ruling something in, even as we keep in mind that God's sovereignty outweighs any decision-making that we may make. And then finally, elimination. Even though all choices may be permissible, some may not be the best and should be discontinued. As we'll talk about in just a few minutes, God's sovereignty weighs in heavily there. Everyone with me so far? Good. As we travel along this pathway of wisdom, it can be helpful to have some checkpoints or some tests so that we can kind of mark our progress and, and really see how we're doing. So just as rapidly as I covered that list, I'm going to give you eight really quick uh, checkpoints or tests and then later, if you're one of these folks that scribbles like crazy to write them all down, you're just going to email me and I'll send you uh, the list. The first one's a scriptural test. And this is the question that we should ask always. Has God already spoken about this in, in his word? You see, in the Old Testament, there's a whole lot of wisdom books, like today's Proverbs, where wise decision-making is specifically taught. 
and practical examples on how to manage debt or how to, how to identify a mate for life or how to engage with a neighbor that's aggressive. In the New Testament, Jesus commends us and commends his disciples to be shrewd as serpents, and then he offers tons of examples on what a wise lifestyle looks like and parables and teachings that we can learn from. The apostles even, his messengers, oftentimes modeled wisdom in the way that they executed life in the early church. And then oftentimes they'd write explanations that went behind the thought processes, even as they modeled that wisdom. And so I can't stress it enough, the frontline defense for wise decision-making is a commitment to studying God's revealed word and then applying it rightly with the correct attitude into our daily lives. We need to do this in our private times with God. We need to do this doing life together, gathered in small groups. We need to do this every Sunday together as the local expression of Jesus Christ. It's as the Apostle Paul told Timothy, He said, all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. There's the secrecy test. The question I'd ask you is, would it bother you if everyone knew about your choice? In other words, do you really want your choice, whatever it is that you're selecting, to be broadcast on Facebook for everyone to see? How about this one, the survey test? What if everyone followed your example in the choice that you made? What would be the cumulative effect if everyone adopted that choice? Follow your choice out to its logical conclusions. So for example, in just a real simple way, what if no one at Redemption Hill Church made the correct choice to serve in some way within their shape? What would the effect be? How about the spiritual test? Am I being people-pressured? Or am I being spirit-led? You know, at times, some of you have heard me say here, NGNP. And I can see some of you nodding your head. No guilt, no pressure. I, when I bring a request to somebody about considering serving, I generally say that. And that's because I want someone to have the freedom to really think about that opportunity and without being manipulated or pressured. We all want that, right? On the other hand... If you're experiencing conviction or pressure by God's Spirit that's prompting you to an action, i got to tell you, I'm all for that. I believe that oftentimes the Spirit will move us in a certain preferred direction, and we need to be attentive to that. There's the stumbling test. Could my decision cause another person to stumble? While all followers of Christ are traveling on a pathway to eternity with Jesus, oftentimes we're just at different points in our journey. We have different temptations that tend to derail us. And mature followers of Jesus Christ, they take that into consideration when they're making their choices amongst lots of choices available. How about the serenity test? Have I prayed and received peace about this decision? Paul instructed the church in Philippi like this. He said, do not be anxious about anything. And that includes decision-making. But in everything, and that includes decision-making as well, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And listen, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How many times have I or you pushed through on a decision that you knew just didn't feel right? There was no peace associated with it. And you regretted it even as you were choosing it, and yet you still pushed through. Sanctification test is a question, will making this choice keep me from growing in the character of Christ? And, and frankly, friends, my, my observation is that that kind of character tends to get developed in the small daily choices that we make, oftentimes the ones that are made when nobody else is really looking. And then the final one, the supreme test, does this decision glorify God? For those of you that might be familiar with the Westminster Catechism, that's just a a historical worship and teaching tool for some Christians. What's the chief end of man? Henry, I know you know. The chief end of man is this, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so if your decision detracts from that, you should put a hold on that choice. And if your decision, I'll take it one step further, leads someone outside the church to observe your choice and conclude anything less than how magnificent God is, or to question the integrity of your walk as you follow him, you probably want to put a hold on that decision too. You see, our witness to how great God is matters in our decision-making And so my prayer for us this morning is that God would help us to receive the many ways that he offers guidance in our decision-making and to respond correctly to the many checkpoints that are made available to us even as we try to make a great decision. Well, I've talked a lot about God's moral will this morning, but there's another aspect of God's will that the scripture talks an awful lot about And it's oftentimes poorly understood by us as as followers of Christ. And that's his sovereign will. And we might think of that as God's sometimes secret plan that determines everything. And by everything, I mean everything that happens in the universe. And so if we're going to be great decision makers, uh, we need to understand a few things about God's sovereign will. First, his sovereign will, it's, it's certain In other words, regardless of the decisions that we make, his sovereign will will, in fact, be accomplished. It cannot be thwarted or frustrated in the end by the mere choices of men. His sovereign will is detailed, and it simply means that our plans only find true fulfillment as they fall into his plans. His sovereign will sometimes is hidden, except when he chooses To reveal it. Now, as created beings, we can only learn about something after it happens. Or, if he chooses to reveal it in advance. God has revealed, for example, that Jesus Christ will come again a second time. And then when he comes, it's going to bring the end to history and there'll be judgment 
And despite whatever you've read in the supermarket, in the National Enquirer as you're checking out, no one knows the day or the time of that precisely. We're left to prepare ourselves as though it's going to be today while waiting to actually see how his sovereign will plays out. And then finally, his sovereign will is perfect because ultimately his will leads to his greatest glory. And although sometimes sin is contrary to God's moral will, its presence is allowed in God's plan in part because his conquest of it, the overcoming of sin and death, reveals more fully his grace and his mercy. And he's going to be glorified even as sin and death is overcome. Look back at Proverbs 2 one more time and where we're told that if we receive and treasure, make and incline, call out and raise up, seek and search, the word of God says that we'll understand and we'll find something. What is it that we're going to find? We're going to find the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God. And this represents, if we're honest, a little bit of a mystery. Because how can God's sovereign will be hidden and secret and yet at the same time we can maybe understand it and find it? And the Apostle Paul admits this in Romans 9 when he tells us that it's a mystery, but it's a mystery that's waiting to be unraveled. And in the meantime, it's always appropriate to seek a fuller or more complete understanding. We just have to understand we have finite minds. And his sovereign will is infinite. And so we have to be committed to studying his word more carefully, communicating with him more frequently, so that we can really begin to appreciate and understand the total, absolute wonder of his sovereign will. And so as we begin to respond to the majesty and the depth of wisdom of God, we live according to this fourth and final principle of decision-making. That's what I'll call the principle of humble trust. You see, when we have chosen what is moral and wise, we must trust the sovereign God to work out all of the details together for good. In other words, as a believer, when we've exercised the very best of our abilities to choose and decide, we should then humbly accept whatever the outworking of God's sovereign will is as it touches every decision that we make. And our posture should be the posture of humble planning as a proper response to the sovereignty of who God is. Once we plan and we act, we then trust him to work things together according to his will and not according to ours. Using the illustration that's on the screen behind me, we might visualize it like this. You know, first, we make what we believe to be a great decision. And then we trust that his sovereign will extends or, or covers over that decision. Right? How many times have we made a decision and we're convinced that God's will is covering that decision? I've certainly got plenty of those. But it gets even better than that because God's sovereign will not only extends over that, but 
It extends over all of the other decisions and the other possibilities that were available to us. And we can be confident that the ultimate outcome of God's preferred future isn't thwarted. His will will, in fact, be accomplished. So furthermore, within the realm of freedom and responsibility, that big circle, his sovereign will covers possibilities that we didn't even ever consider. They never came to our mind. It gets even better than that because his sovereign will extends over the entirety of his permissible will. Everything that he sees as good and right falls underneath that. It gets better than that. In fact, because God is all-powerful and he's all-knowing, his sovereign will even encompasses those decisions that fall outside of his moral will. In other words, even when we disobey or make a lousy decision, his will is still sovereign. His ultimate goals are not thwarted. He cannot be overcome. He cannot be defeated by Satan, sin, death, lousy decision-making, or any other evil that's in this broken world. And that's why, for me, my best way of envisioning his sovereign will in relationship to our personal decision-making is that it's like a huge stamp that goes over all of the possibilities that could ever be selected and chosen when it comes to making a decision. And people, this should give us comfort. I shared with a friend recently, if you were to design God, which is obviously an absurd statement, wouldn't you want him to be a God with a capital letter G, powerful and even mysterious, rather than a God with a little letter G, puny, and able to be completely understood? I would. And wouldn't you want to rest in the knowledge that this powerful, mysterious God was also massively kind, massively compassionate, so that when your decisions and my decisions, best, great, good, adequate, tragic, short-sighted, weird, silly, misguided, off-track, that he is able to zig them when they should have zagged. And then in his mercy and his compassion, he points us again in a direction that's consistent with his moral will as the compass to our decision-making. My prayer is that God will help us to make our best decisions, and then after they're made, that we will humbly trust that his sovereign will be done. I'd like to conclude with a story. You may have heard this story. It's a story of Abby D'Agostino. She's a resident of Topsfield, Massachusetts. Who knows? Maybe a friend of hers is here today. I don't know. She's uh, one of the most decorated athletes in Ivy League history. She won seven NCAA championships at Dartmouth College, including indoor, outdoor, and country cross titles. And she represented the United States recently in the concluded 2016 Summer Olympic Games in Rio. And during her 5,000-meter qualifying race, her feet got tangled up with another runner from New Zealand 
a woman named Nikki Hamlin, and they both went down. Now, despite long hours of training and the constant coaching that she heard to always get up and run and the intense pressure of, let's face it, it's the Olympics, right? D'Agostino made a decision. She chose to jeopardize her time and instead assisted her fallen New Zealand competitor, a woman that she had never met before, a functional stranger. And so now, fallen way beyond the time that was necessary to qualify her for the next heat, they both got up and they began to run again. And only this time, D'Agostino discovered that she had massively injured her leg. And down she went. And this time, it was the New Zealand competitor who provided the assistance to D'Agostino. Well, the story goes on that eventually they both struggled to finish the race and they embraced at the finish line in a classic moment. It was hailed by the media across the world as the representation of the Olympic spirit. In fact, this moment was so powerful that both women were awarded a special sportsmanship Olympic medal. Now listen, there's only been 17 ever given out in the history of the Olympics. This was no small award. They also were given permission to run the next heat in the next race, even though their times clearly didn't qualify for them for it. Now, sadly, D'Agostino never got to run that race because it turns out that she had severe tears of her ACL and she's going to need uh, surgery. Well, you might imagine that D'Agostino felt defeated by this seemingly cruel turn of events. After all, she had decided to avoid all kinds of forbidden activities according to God's moral will. She had chosen within her freedom and her responsibility of choice to devote herself to countless hours of training. She'd made lots of decisions, good decisions of commitment and perseverance. She was gifted as a runner. She was encouraged by everyone around her to pursue running. She experienced inner peace when she ran as she was pursuing Olympic gold for years. But as a follower of Christ, she was excited about the prospect of racing for the gold and honoring God in front of all the nations. And she had determined in her heart that when she won, she was committed to giving him the glory. But she didn't win. Despite a lot of really great decisions that she made up until that point, God had a different plan and a different purpose according to his sovereign will. And this is how she explained it in front of the whole world to hear. Although my actions were instinctual at that moment, the only way I can and have rationalized it is that God prepared my heart to respond that way. This whole time here, he's made clear to me that my experience in Rio was going to be, listen, about more than my race performance. And as soon as Nikki got up, I knew that was it. So many people have been praying that God would make his name known through these games. And that was one of the ways... He's chosen to do it. Like, if one of you people know her, would you introduce me to her? I mean, I want to go, way to go, Abby, sister in Christ. See, she 
weaved her way through lots of daily faithful choices and even some life-altering ones like preparing for the Olympics, but all the while leaning in and trusting on the sovereign will of God. And when the time came to make a great decision in the instant that it occurred, she chose wisely because she had been choosing wisely right along. And God was faithful to provoke her to right action. And God's name was honored and glorified. What an inspiration to me. What a challenge for all of us. So as we conclude, let me just give you at the back end of this time of sharing my main point. We make great decisions when we make decisions that please God. He initiates them. He lines them up with his word. He accomplishes his purpose. He depends we depend on his strength and it results in giving him glory. And so let's just learn what God wants us to do and then let's just do it. And then let's believe that the details will be rightly steered by a loving and a kind Father God. And as I close this in prayer and we get ready to sing just this incredible hymn of the church, Be Thou My Vision, Let's commit, no matter what the decisions are, to have his sovereign will as the mind's eye and the focus of the choices that we make. Is God honored when we choose vanilla ice cream over chocolate? I think if we tell him thank you, I think he is. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we... We ask that you be our vision. We ask that you capture our heart. We ask that you help us to see you clearly, as clearly as we can. We thank you for what you've revealed to us. Father, help our best thoughts and our best decisions, whether it's day or night, when we're awake or when we're sleeping. Help us to follow the light that you provide to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand up and join in as Caleb leads us.